Welcome to the Miner and Landis podcast for March 1st, 2021. This week, we take a break from our usual format. Instead of listening to me rattle on for 10 minutes, we have a longer podcast. It's about 20 minutes with Miner and Landis immigration partner Lynn Walker and immigration associate Kristen Sisko talking about one of their recent client success stories. This is an interesting case concerning the apparent conflict between practical training, as authorized by USCIS regulations, hybrid graduate programs, as authorized by ICE, and how USCIS determines maintenance of status for F1 students. Lynn and Kristen do a great job of explaining the relevant regulations, the discrepancies they found, and their solutions for the problems that arose. But this is a dense topic, and if you find you prefer a visual presentation, this also exists as a video on the Lynn Walker Immigration Attorney YouTube channel. We put some of the text up on the screen for those who prefer to read along, which I think can be helpful for material like this. So anyway, let's turn it over now to Lynn and Kristen, safely getting together via Zoom this past week. Hi, I'm Lynn Walker, immigration partner at Minor and Landis, and I'm joined today by my colleague, the fabulous Kristen Sisko, who is an immigration associate. And we wanted to welcome you in joining us today in our discussion about a successful RFE response that we recently submitted to USCIS. Kristen and I collaborated together to respond to a very challenging RFE about how an F-1 student maintained their lawful immigration status while they were working and going to school at the same time using full-time CPT. So Kristen, can you give us a summary of the person's background yeah, absolutely. So first off, in order to protect the confidentiality of our client, we're going to be using fictitious names for her name, the university's names, and her employers. Our client, Ms. Smith will say, entered the United States on an F-1 student visa on January 1st, 2016. She came to the United States to attend New Jersey Valley University. She came to complete a bachelor's degree in computer science. When she completed the degree, she completed OPT, which is optional practical training. For the OPT, she completed it with the employer Worldwide Travel Agency. In this capacity, she worked as a software engineer. Ms. Smith next completed a master's degree in information technology management. She completed this degree with New Jersey Technology University. She maintained valid F1 status the entire time. While completing this master's degree, she continued to be employed by Worldwide Travel Agency. This was in pursuant to her approved CPT, which is curricular practical training. Ms. Smith next sought a higher education level. She enrolled in the IT management PhD program at IT University. Now this school and the graduate programs that they offer, they offer a hybrid program. The hybrid program has a model of in-person classes as well as online classes. One of the benefits enrolling in this type of program with IT University is that the school offers immediate CPT. And this is for the duration of the graduate studies. So this was a big benefit to Ms. Smith because she was able to continue working under, under authorized CPT 
for her employer, Worldwide Travel Agency. Now, during this time, her employer decided to request that she receive H-1B visa status. Her employer was successful in the H-1B lottery back in March, 2020. So Ms. Smith next sought to change her status from the F-1 student visa to the H-1B visa. Uh, so not long after this request was submitted, Ms. Smith re received a request for evidence from USCIS. Um, this request for evidence asked for additional information about her maintenance of status. So Lynn, can you kind of summarize and walk us through exactly what this RFE requested? Thank you, Kristen. In essence, what USCIS issued was a three-part RFE requesting proof that Ms. Smith maintained her status, that Ms. Smith was enrolled in a full-time course of study, and that Ms. Smith was participating in CPT and that the CPT was an integral part of her PhD program. So Kristen, given that USCIS seems to authorize students to participate in full-time CPT when they're attending graduate school, what do you think triggered this RFE? So it's, it's interesting. So the CPT is permitted under the relevant regulations. In our experience, USCIS tends to issue these RFEs when the foreign national attends graduate programs that are hybrid in nature. So as we spoke about before, the in-person and the online courses and also when they receive CPT that runs throughout their graduate programs. Now, ICE authorizes schools to have the hybrid programs and to enroll foreign national students in these hybrid programs, but USCIS does not seem to like the hybrid programs and ask for more information from the foreign national when they seek to change their status. Now, with respect to these relevant regulations, Lynn, can you kind of run us through the OPT and CPT regulations? Thank you, Kristen, I can. I find it really interesting though that ICE approves of schools to offer these hybrid programs, but USCIS challenges them. That seems to be a really weird conflict between the two agencies, um, obviously, whose goals overlap in terms of monitoring foreign students. I mean, if ICE is saying it's okay, it doesn't seem to make sense to me that USCIS would then challenge it. It just seems very puzzling. So I think maybe if we go through the regulations a little bit, and I'll be reading from these because I just simply don't know them off the top of my head, um, it, it may help us elucidate or um, discuss more what could be triggering this. Practical training may be authorized to an F1 student who has been lawfully enrolled in a full, on a full-time basis in a service-approved college, university, conservatory, or seminary for one full academic year. This provision also includes students who, during their course of study, were enrolled in a study abroad program if the student had spent at least one full academic term enrolled in a full course of study in the United States prior to studying abroad. A student may be authorized for 12 months of practical training and becomes eligible for another 12 months of practical training when he or she changes to a higher educational level. 
there are two types of practical training available, as Kristen discussed. The first one is curricular practical training, which is the one that seems to trigger the most RFEs. An F1 student may be authorized by the DSO, or designated school official, to participate in a curricular practical training program that is an integral part of an established curriculum. Curricular practical training is defined to be alternative work study, internship, cooperative education, or any other type of required internship or practicum that is offered by sponsoring employers through cooperative agreements with schools. Students who have received one year or more of full-time curricular practical training are ineligible for post-completion academic training. Exceptions to the one-year academic requirement are provided for students enrolled in graduate studies that require immediate participation in curricular practical training. A request for authorization for curricular practical training must be made to the DSO. A student may begin curricular practical training only after receiving his or her Form I-20 with the DSO endorsement. The second type of practical training is known as optional practical training, which most students receive upon completion of their degree. So the regulations say consistent with the application and approval process in paragraph F11 of this section, a student may apply to USCIS for authorization for temporary employment for optional practical training directly related to the student's major area of study. A student may not begin optional practical training until the date indicated on his or her employment authorization document, Form I-765. So Kristen, given what the RFE was requiring and what the regulations state, how were we able to successfully respond to this RFE on behalf of Ms. Smith? So we took a few steps to kind of tease out what was going on here. Um, first, we took a look at all the relevant documents. So we pulled out the H-1B petition that was submitted to USCIS, and we had a very thorough look at that. We then went back to the RFE and read the RFE again. We then went back to the regulations and thoroughly reviewed the regulations. And at Minor and Landis, the RFE process is run by two attorneys. So there's one attorney that takes a full look at everything and then a second set of eyes that takes a full look at everything. We wanna be as comprehensive as possible. We wanna take a look at all the issues and make sure we wrap our head around all the issues and what's going on here. We also wanna make sure that there's nothing ultra virus, meaning nothing um, across, nothing beyond the legal authority of USCIS. We wanna make sure what they're asking for is legit and they can legitimately ask for those documents. So after we did that to understand what the issues were, we next contacted the client and we provided the client a comprehensive list of all the documents that they needed to collect in order to allow us to respond to this RFE. This list for this particular RFE included, but didn't limit to the following types of documents. So first off, we requested all the form I-20s. These are the certificates of eligibility for non-immigrant student status that were issued to Ms. Smith. We asked them for all of her degrees. 
We then asked Ms. Smith for the transcripts for all the schools she attended in the United States. We asked her for copies for a bachelor's degree and her master's degree, along with the corresponding transcripts, of course. We asked her for the degree progress report for IT University, the school that she was currently attending, to confirm how many credits she had actually completed and what she had left to complete. We asked for receipts documenting the tuition payments for IT University to show that she was actively paying tuition there. We asked her for copies of textbook receipts, parking passes, school supplies, anything else to prove that she's actively engaged in studying at this university. We asked her for a copy of her student ID, uh, her course syllabi, evidence confirming her attendance. We, we asked her for evidence to show that the courses she was enrolled in uh, required CPT for an applied learning component. We asked her for evidence showing immediate participation in CPT was actually required for the degree. We also asked her for evidence to show that her employment as a software engineer with Worldwide Travel Agency was specifically related to her PhD major of information technology management. Now this particular case with Ms. Smith was challenging. It was challenging because IT University gave her the runaround with obtaining the documents that she needed. We had to provide her a lot of guidance on how to push back with the university to tease out the exact documents that she needed. So this case required a lot of thinking outside the box and a lot of attorney guidance for her in, in this type of nature. Kristen, you mentioned the, the thinking outside the box strategy. We hear that term a lot, and that can mean a host of things. In this particular case, can you give us an example of some of the outside the box strategies that we had to implement for Ms. Smith because IT University was rather uncooperative in our efforts? Right. So there's a, a few different issues going on here. One was the proximity that Ms. Smith lived to the school. So it turned out Ms. Smith only lived a few miles from school. So parking passes when you walk to school is impossible. Some of this information just isn't there. So we kind of had to get her testimony and work through a declaration with her to kind of explain what was going on here. And in that type of situation too, that we couldn't prove that there was food expenses because she didn't eat at school, she went home for her breaks. Besides just offering that in her declaration, we wanted some type of substantial information that we could cite to. So we had the school then um, produce the attendance records, but the attendance records that the school produced were really difficult to understand. It was really hard to see what was the online classes compared to the physical component. So we had to kind of push back and see, well, did you complete homework assignments? All right. Can you get the school to pro provide proof that you completed the homework assignments and the grades to show that you were actively participating in the educational requirements? So it was strategies like that that we had to constantly kind of revisit and think about, okay, well, again, the parking passes, you don't go to school, you don't, well, you go to school, you just don't have the parking passes. You physically walk there. Okay, so what can we do to supplement that? And it was that type of thinking outside the box. Oh, excellent. Thank you. So I think at this point, what we want to do is offer some general tips for students who, who may find themselves in this particular position where 
USCIS issues a request for evidence asking them to prove maintenance of status. And in our experience, we see this most often with, again, with students who are enrolled in hybrid graduate programs that offer in-person and online components and engage in immediate CPT. So for these individuals, some of the things that you may want to keep in mind when you start such a program is that you really need to be diligent in keeping records. And by keeping records, we mean records of all academic related expenses. So for example, textbooks, if your school requires you to purchase textbooks, you need to prove that you purchase them. You need parking passes, transportation expenses, food expenses, lodging expenses. If like Ms. Smith, you live close to your school, and don't have many of these, then we need to be creative in showing that you actually paid for your expenses in terms of enrollment costs, tuition costs. One of the things Ms. Smith was encountering was the employer listed on her I-20s. The name did not match the agreement between the school and the employer. The uh, they call it the cooperative agreement. And that is because Ms. Smith's employer used a DBA or doing business as or a trade name. It is essential that if the name of the employer on the I-20 does not match the co cooperative agreement, you need to have a certificate confirming that the two entities are the same and that they simply use different names. So for example, um, a DBA might be instead of us saying Minor and Landis, we may use MNL, right? So we would need a certificate proving that that is the same entity. And uh, one of the third tips would be that you need to keep all academic records. So course syllabi, completed assignments, attendance records, any documentation that proves that you physically attended courses and that you were active in your education online and in person. And finally, any documentation showing that one or more of your courses had an applied learning or internship component, which required you to obtain and engage in CPT. So Kristen, in closing, what is some guidance that we can offer other foreign nationals or companies that may receive this type of RFE or similar RFEs? So this type of RFE or RFEs in general can be very complex and very challenging. There's often a lot of issues to look at. It's really critical not to overlook anything in your response. So overlooking an issue can have a very detrimental effect to the foreign national. Something such as an RFE for maintenance of status, if something's overlooked and they don't prove that they had that full maintenance of status, that could be extremely detrimental to them obtaining any future visa. Or even if they go for a green card in the future, they're going to show that they had a gap of status if they don't answer correctly and provide all of the evidence necessary. So in that sense, we highly recommend all of our US employers and foreign nationals contact a qualified attorney as soon as they receive that request for evidence. Now there's due dates with these requests for evidence. So it's, it's crucial to take a look at that as soon as you get it and contact an attorney so they have the time, they have ample time 
to review the issues, walk you through what documentation is needed. You can then go collect the documentation and then the attorney could provide further guidance on how to respond to that. Um, so essentially contact an attorney as soon as you get one of these requests for evidence. They're often really complex. Uh, tackling them by yourself is risky because you may not acknowledge a certain issue. And if you overlook that, again, it could be very detrimental to you. Uh, Kristen, just a quick question. When you said that these RFEs have due dates, usually how much time are we given once we receive the RFE or once the RFE is mailed? They, they could be as soon as 60 days, anywhere from 60 to 90 days. I've even seen within 30 days. It depends on the immigration officer. Um, I believe they have a maximum of 90 days that they can allot, but sometimes they only allot 30 days for the particular RFA. And that's key because, for example, with Ms. Smith, if I recall, we were down to the wire. We needed more than, than 30 days to gather the evidence. And a lot of it was because of the difficulty and the challenges that her school presented. And also she needed to go back many, many years to collect all of this evidence proving her status. I think she had been in the U.S. for eight or nine years, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And so she had to comb through all of her I-20s. She had to physically go to the school, I believe, for certain documentation. And then drafting her declaration with her and going back and forth with that to make sure we didn't have any gaps. That all takes a fair amount of time. Thank you, Kristen. Well, I want to thank everyone for joining us today. We welcome you to join us monthly for our client success videos. Kristen and I have been collaborating together now for several months, and we do have a lot of client success stories that we'd like to share. If you have any questions relating to this matter or any matter relating to an RFE, please feel free to contact Kristen and I at the contact information provided at the end of this video. It has been our privilege to share this time with you, and we thank you for watching. To speak with a Minor and Landis representative and set up a consultation, please go to www.minor.com. That's M-E-Y-N-E-R.com. Or call 973-624-2800. That's 973-624-2800. The information contained in this video or podcast is intended only for educational or informational purposes and is not a substitute for legal advice. Further, viewing or listening to this HR tip in no way establishes an attorney-client relationship between you and Minor and Landis LLP. Viewers or listeners should consult legal counsel for definitive advice regarding the current law and regulations and how those apply to your unique situation within your organization.